just briefly, we started a few weeks ago looking at Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, where he has just started his public ministry. In chapter 4, we read he, he begins to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls uh, the first disciples. And then here, as he, as he gives this sermon, he's called his, his, his disciples up on the, the side of a mountain. Uh, there are others listening in, but his message is for disciples. And he's telling them, listen, this is what this kingdom that I'm, I'm telling you about, that I'm announcing has come, this is what it's all about. This is what kingdom life is. Uh, and he has to redirect them a little bit. He has to take disciples like Peter, who is ready to, to take things on his own back and in his own hands and see the kingdom come really and tangibly and militarily right now. He has to say, hey, the kingdom's coming, but, but it's not that kind of kingdom. Let me tell you more about what it's about. It's a spiritual kingdom, uh, and it's, it's Jesus' rule. It's my rule in your heart and life and then through you to the world. And he has to take other disciples that are more like Thomas that are the doubters that say, I don't, I don't know. I just can't figure this out. I can't do this. And he has to come alongside them and say, that's right. You can't, but I can. And in my strength and through my strength, you can see significant things happen. Uh, until I come again. And so that's what we're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at, for the first couple of weeks, the, uh, the Beatitudes. Jesus is describing the life, the character of a disciple in those first few verses. And then we looked at the results of a life that is, is, is lived for Jesus, for his kingdom. The life of a disciple, the results being persecution, salt and light, and the praise given to the Lord. And today there's a transition made in the sermon as he takes the description of the character of a life of a disciple. And then he says, hey, this is how uh, it, it works in some specific test cases and scenarios. If you're living this way, then it redefines in a positive way. Um, it renews a right understanding of the law that was given long ago to the nation of Israel. Let me ask you as we get started, um, what are you more known for as a person? What about you You and your church uh, home? What, what is your church known for? We might ask a bigger question, what is the church in, say, America known for? Are we known more for what we are against or more for what we are saying we're for? A lot of times we can easily become known for what we're against. You know, I don't like this. I won't do this. We, we, we don't like you if you have this lifestyle or that lifestyle. We, we, we draw the lines really deep of, so that folks know for sure, well, we're not associated with these things. We're against all of these things. And we leave a void for folks to say, well, if you're not, a, yeah, you're not about all those things, but what are, what are you for? What do you, what do you seek to be about in your life and ministry? Um, I think about it a lot of times in terms of, uh, of the Winnie the Pooh characters. My kids love the Winnie the Pooh movies, and the characters are just so distinct. You've got, you know, Rabbit, who's the, the worker and who always has it figured out and can set a plan in action and get it done. You've got Owl, who thinks he knows it all, but ends up using his wisdom to get the whole crew in trouble all the time and misleading them. Um, You've got Winnie the Pooh, you've got Piglet. They are also distinct, but two of my favorite characters are Eeyore and Tigger, partly because they're so opposite. You know, you've got Eeyore, who is always telling you what's not going to happen, the eternal pessimist. 
You know, somebody near him says, I think I'm getting a cold. What's his response? Well, I'll probably get it too. You know, it's, it's just, that's just going to happen. The worst case scenario. And you got Tigger, who's the opposite, who's bouncing around. And you never know what he's against. You only know what he's for. He's for bouncing. He's for adventure. That, he's just full of life and energy. Um, in the person of Jesus, you get both. He's not afraid to tell you, hey, this is what I'm against. But he also doesn't stop there. He says, this is what I'm against because this is what I'm about. And this is what I'm for and what I'm passionate about. And I think we as people, as individuals, and then as a church, would do so much better, have so much more of an effective witness if we were that way. If we didn't just state and stand on what we were against, but then were passionate about and lived for certain things. The Ten Commandments that Jesus references in some of these test cases that he puts forth are uh, not ever, weren't ever meant to be a, a ceiling of, okay, just don't go this far and you'll be okay. But they were meant to be a floor saying, hey, this is the, the at least don't do these. But then excel still more and read behind it what the positive intent of these things are and go do these things. Um, they were an attempt to limit sin and to get back to the creation order, the things that God had created things, the way that th- God had created things to be. So that's what Jesus does. And this passage before us, I want to read it, and then we'll talk about it, specifically looking today at the test case of anger, of murder. Uh, so let's read, starting in verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes into describing one of the test cases that we're going to look at today. He says, you've heard it was said to to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. Let's pray one more time. God, be our teacher. Um, th- today, we, we need you. I need you to attempt to explain this clearly. And God, we need you to then uh, make an impact on our hearts with your word and change the way we live. So we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a progression here, but it starts with the overall statement of Jesus saying two things. Number one, he says, I have not come to abolish the law. So he's, he's preparing them. All that I'm about to say is what Jesus is saying. All I'm about to say is, is not going to do away with the law. I'm for it, is what he says. Actually, you are, you, you're to keep it. 
You're to do these things and practice them and teach them to others. But I'm going to do more than just um, than just teach it. I'm, I've come to fulfill it um, by the way I live, by who I am, by what I accomplish in my life here. And then he tells them, he gives them a, a, a word of warning. He says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were the elite spiritual giants of the day. The scribes were the best interpreters of Scripture. The Pharisees were the best practicers of, uh, of the Word of God. They had it all together, but they'd gone in ways that were unhelpful. They would take the law of God, and then they'd add to it, thinking that they were, 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 were helping, thinking that they were becoming more spiritual by doing so. For instance, in the, the Sabbath uh, commandment, to, to keep the Sabbath, to rest, they would take it and they would add to it saying, you know what, let's define that a little bit further for you. You probably need some help to know what it means to rest and to, to take a rest. So actually, it means you can go no further than a thousand steps on the Sabbath. Any more and you're violating it. Okay, is that clear? Okay, well, what if we're extra hungry and you know we, we run out of food? Well, okay, so you're not working on the Sabbath. You can take up to one full gulp out of storage. Any more than that, and you're going to be working. Um, and there were more and more of these regulations that they would heap on to the, the law of God, thinking they were helping, thinking that they were becoming more spiritual. They saw it as, as a ceiling, something I can't approach, so I'm just going to keep backing away, backing away, backing away to, to, to ensure that I'll never transgress that, that commandment. Jesus is saying, hey, Unless your righteousness exceeds them, then you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what he wasn't saying, as we'll find out soon, was, hey, you've got to do even, even better than that. If they say 1,000 steps, then you only go 500. If they say a gulp, you say a half of a gulp. No, he wasn't saying you've got to exceed that kind of righteousness. What he's going to do is redefine righteousness. He's saying, hey, that's not what it's about. It's not about trying not to, 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 to put all these fences up so you not get close. It's to say, hey, what is at the heart of this law? And then what is that a platform, a floor for me to go and do, do righteousness, do things positively, say what I'm for, and, and launch into things that are, are uh, actions of a disciple. So he starts with murder in verse uh, 21. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He starts off and he says, that is, that is good. That is a good command. Uh, we shouldn't murder. Chances are, his audience is very much like ours today here in this room. That doesn't really affect us, many of us. None of us could say, "Well, yeah, I do have a tendency to kill people," um, and I, you know, I, I try to I try to stop, but I just find myself murdering people all the time. So I need to stop that. You're right. You know, most of us say, "Okay, got that one," and we move on. Well, he doesn't stop there. He proves that yes, you shouldn't murder, but he goes on in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He says not only is the, the actual um, commission of murder a violation of the law of God, he says there's something behind it that leads to it, and that is anger and contempt. He's saying if you have a, a heart, an attitude of anger and contempt, those are the groundwork 
that lead to the actual action of murder later on. And if you're doing it, you're, you're just as much guilty of murder as if you actually committed the act. First of all, anger. Now, anger, we've got to be clear, is not always wrong. There is such thing as a righteous anger, and Jesus had it. Uh, Jesus got angry. He cleaned house in the temple. But his anger was, was very specific. First of all, he was very slow to anger. He was very patient. And God, throughout the scriptures, contrary to what we think, when we think, well, God of the Old Testament was not slow to anger, and Jesus is very loving. No, God, all throughout the scriptures, is very patient with his people. He's very slow to anger. But secondly, his anger, just like uh, God the Father, is, was always mingled with a grief over sin. You picture Jesus, the words that are used when, when it says Jesus was, was moved or was angry. It, it's it's, the, it's the, the, the picture of a, of a child that's got this all mix of emotions. He knows there's something that's been violated, but it's, it's moving him to tears. It's, there's grief associated with it. A wrong has been done, and it needs to be righted. It, it's moved at a gut level. And Jesus' anger was never over a personal offense, but it was always on behalf of others. Think about the temple. What was going on in the temple? It wasn't just that there was a bunch of animals uh, around that he wanted to clean out. It was that where the animals were, where the trading was going on, it was taking place in the only place that the Gentiles had to come and worship. It was in the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus was saying, hey, Israelites, your whole mission has been to be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. And here you are setting up your trading and your selling of animals for sacrifice right in the very place, the only place they have to worship. He said, you, you've totally missed your mission. And so he cleans house because he's zealous that Gentiles are able to worship God. So it's never of a personal offense. It's on behalf of others. And it's never, again, over a personal offense, but over sin that, that offends God and offends man. And somebody said it this way. Another thing about Jesus' anger is, is that the results are always good. When Jesus gets angry, a crippled man is made, it's made right. When Jesus gets angry, those that were unable to worship are, are able now to come and worship. Good always comes of it because it's always on behalf of others. It's always righting a wrong. Ours, our anger, my anger, I'll speak on, on personally here, is usually the opposite of that. What do you get angry about? It's a personal offense. It's not on behalf of others. It's been what's been done to me. My rights have been violated, and I'm mad. It's not something that's been done against God or others. It's, it's you've hurt my pride. You've done something against me, and I'm going to take revenge, or I'm going to get even, or we're going to figure this out some way. At least I'm going to hold a grudge and not speak to you for a little while. It's the opposite of what a right anger is. And not only anger, he says, um, but he says, if you insult your brother, if you say, you fool, he says this idea of contempt is even worse. The anger that leads to contempt. He uses a couple of terms here. The first is, is raka, which basically, if we translated it in our language, would be idiot. Anybody, anybody that calls somebody an idiot, which is basically in contempt for someone's mind, saying, you're stupid. You're an idiot. Anybody that says that, he says, has got contempt for that person. Or he says, if you call someone a fool, which in our translation might be more, you're just a loser. Your whole life is a mess. Uh, it's, it's contempt, not for someone's mind, but for their character. 
So he says you're calling somebody in your heart or with your words having contempt for someone's mind or for their, their, their character, their life. He's saying together, you put those things two together, and what you're basically saying is that that person is worthless. To me, in my eyes, I'm angry at you, you've done something against me, and so in my eyes, you either you're not right in the mind, and so you're worthless as far as your mind goes, or your character is worthless, and so um, I, I, I want nothing to do with you. Or worse, I, I, uh, I want to take action against you. There's a progression. We judge that we've been wrong. We get angry about it for because of personal reasons. And then we move to the judgment in our hearts and our heads of, of someone as an idiot or a loser, and therefore worthless. And therefore, ultimately, where that leads is they deserve to die. If they don't have any worth, might as well just do away with them. And that's where the process goes, Jesus is saying, that leads to murder. It leads to the eventual action of murder. And by the way, it doesn't have to be an action. It can be an inaction. How often do we judge people, um, the unborn, the elderly, whatever else, as useless now or no worth, and therefore maybe not action but by inaction we commit some form of murder? This is hard words. But Jesus says, listen, you've got to deal with the things in your own heart and ultimately that would lead to an action like murder so that you can actually do the positive side of this law of not to murder. Not only do you not take life, but then how do you promote good things in life? And that's where he moves from there. He says, he goes on to say the disciple is responsible not only to prevent murderous acts or attitudes in ourselves, but in our brothers, in our brothers in the Lord. Israel was always, and, and the church today, is called to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. Those words are used both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to describe what Israel was and now what the church is. A holy nation, set apart, rid your life of these things like anger and contempt and resentment. But so that you can be a royal priesthood. Now what does that mean? Well, a, a priest in the Old Testament times had a couple of duties. One, to declare... Um, God's word and teach God's word to people, but all, and so therefore to bring God to people, but also then to take the people to God through sacrifice. I mean, that was their job, was to, 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 to perform the sacrifices on behalf of the people. So what God is saying in the Old Testament and the New to us is that that's what you're, you're, you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be a, a, a holy um, nation so that you can be a royal priesthood, so that you can bring God to people and bring people to God. Well, you can't, you can't bring people to God unless you're a holy nation, unless you, you've got some of these things dealt with in your own life. But that's where he moves now from individuals, us as individuals, to others. He says to love your brother means you're going to be moved to action to rid a murderous disposition in them, even and especially if it's towards you. I've always read this verse wrong growing up. I always thought it was if, if I've done something against somebody and I realize it, then I need to go get that right before I come to worship. Actually, it's the opposite. He's saying if somebody has got something against you, that I'm responsible. If you're mad at me, I'm responsible to go make it right so that you won't enter worship with a murderous attitude and anger in your heart. Oh, <laughs> wait a second here. If, 
My, my attitude most of the time is, hey, if they're mad at me, that's their issue. They're only going to have to deal with it, right? And Jesus is saying, no, that doesn't cut it. If, you, if you're a holy nation, if you've got some of these things right in your own heart, then that will free you then to be, be moving towards others to, to help them. It's not just a progression. It's also an application. Um, you know, I, uh, my tendency to not go and try to make something right if I think you've got an offense against me, a lot of times, this is very honest, a lot of times because I've judged you in my heart as an idiot or a fool. And so you're not worth my time to go make sure that you don't have something against me. So see, it's not just a progression. It's also an application of what he's just talked about with anger and contempt. So we're to be not only dealing with our own selves, but to be helping others if, if they've got something against us. And then he finally ends up in a, in a place that nobody thought he was going. He goes on to say the disciples must even strive to prevent anger in their enemies. It makes me think of, uh, of Doc Holliday, the movie Tombstone. Uh, if you haven't watched it, it's got terrible language and I don't necessarily recommend it. But there's a scene in there where the good guys, Doc Holliday has been given the, the little badge as an honorary sheriff for a, a time. And they walk around the corner to deal with the cowboys. And it's the OK Corral. And the, all the guns, I mean, it's very tense. They've all got their guns and they're just looking at who's going to draw first. And they're silent. And kind of starting to calm down and then you see Doc Holliday look at one of the cowboys in the eye and he winks at him just enough to get him riled up so that he'll draw his gun and there can be a gunfight um, that's what we like that's what we like to do to our enemies right I know in my enemy that one thing that I can do that's just gonna just rub whatever it is in that we know that we've got against each other and Jesus says no no you do the opposite you do all that you can to be at peace with men even following them to the court proceeding and settling it on the steps before you go into court. And he uses the court proceeding as an example um, because you know how fast things can get messy in, in court like that. And so they are the adversary. Um, they want to take you down, Jesus says. So make it right. Do what you can to, to be at peace. So take responsibility for whatever is your part, and that may free them to do the same, to take it uh, uh, take responsibility for their part, and there can be some reconciliation. Um, and just a couple of real practical applications. Uh, Todd Erickson, who was my mentor in, in youth ministry years ago, used to always say, hey, if you've got a problem with somebody, go deal with it face-to-face. -face. Don't write it in an email or a letter. Whereas if you've got something encouraging to say, go write it down somewhere so that they can not only hear it one time, but they can read it over and over and over again and, and receive multiple encouragements from it. And I've, I've always thought it was great advice. I think that's, that's in the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. So what are you angry about? What's, what's eating at you? And where is that coming from? How do we do this, I guess is what I'm saying. When I was first starting seminary, I mean, I had come from a campus ministry where I'd led worship through guitar for years. I'd been in youth ministry for about five, five and a half years where I led worship on guitar for, uh, for a, a lot of time. I'd even done it here on Sunday night some. And one song that we always played was Isaiah 43. And I knew it, you know, backwards and forwards, played it hundreds of times. 
Well, I get to seminary, and um, through the first few months, the church we're going to, a church plant, somebody finds out that I play guitar and have led worship, and they ask me to help on one Sunday morning. So I show up early for practice, and there's a, a girl that's singing and a guy playing um, a, a drum, and I'm, I'm playing a guitar, and we're starting to, to rehearse, and we're rehearsing Isaiah 43. And um, the girl looks at me halfway through the first verse and says, Stop, stop, stop. We're playing this way too slow. And I just feel the heat rising up in my face. Just think, what, 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 I played, I didn't say this, this is what I'm thinking in my head. We, I played this a hundred times. I know how this song goes. I know the tempo. Who is she? How does she know? Is she, you know? Has she ever played a song? Does she even know how to play guitar? You know, all these, all these things are kind of running around in my heart and my head. Well, we sit down, we, we have a, uh, we play it in the service. I sit down to, to hear the sermon and I'm still just focused. I can't believe she said this thing. Well, I don't even, I can't tell you what the sermon was about that day. We're riding home on the way home and I'm telling Annette, can you believe, let me tell you what happened before the service. And she just looks at me and she's just like, where is this coming from? You know, it's, it was a song. She just made a suggestion. And I just realized as I was sitting there having an out-of-body experience, hearing myself tell my wife this story, I was just like, are you serious, Eric? You're this angry <laughs> over this little thing? Well, what had happened? My identity was in the fact that people thought that I was a good worship leader or I could play the guitar. How dare she attack that sense of identity, something on the inside? See, so many times the reason we're angry is for much bigger reasons than what's on the surface. Jesus, in all of these uh, scenarios that we'll look at in the coming weeks, is saying, hey, this thing on the outside is dealing with a much bigger issue. And it's a heart issue. The reason you're angry, the reason you get angry, nine times out of ten is because one of the idols in your life, in my life, is being attacked. One of the things that's become our source of identity, what we get our sense of satisfaction or fulfillment or purpose from, is being attacked. And it's something other than Jesus. Jesus is saying, hey, if you're a disciple, you're going to know your spiritual needs. And you're going to know you've got it. The only way you can do the things that I'm calling you to is in and through a relationship with me. I've accomplished salvation for you. I'm the only one who's lived the perfect life. And only in a, in a relationship with, with me, getting strength from me, will you be able to attempt to not take offense personally, but to be freed up instead to go and, and deal with somebody else that may be angry with you, and even go for your enemy and try to reconcile. These are not further list of rules that we've got to attain to be accepted by Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is what is the character and the life of a disciple who is trusting in somebody who's already accomplished these things for us, for you. So if you're trusting in Jesus today, then cry out to him. God, rid my heart of these idols that are making me so angry that lead to murderous attitudes and hearts and then help me, use me, to help root them out of other people in a godly way. Let's pray. God, we want to be angry, but we want to be angry about the right things. And we want to be angry as you were angry to help uh, rid the world of, uh, of sin and injustice and things that break your heart that matter to you and in a way that does good. So, God, deal with our hearts. Get to the sin behind the sin in our own hearts that makes us angry. And root it out so that we can be in a right relationship with you and that we won't have murderous attitudes rolling around our heads and hearts, but also so that we'll be free 
have a platform from which to launch into the lives of other people and help to be peacemakers that you've called your disciples to be. Will you work that in us through your power and your strength and because of what you've accomplished on our behalf, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.